Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Sean O'Connor. If you're a fan of Highbun, you'll know Sean and the Highbun Journal he was founding editor of, called quite simply, the Highbun Journal. If you don't know it, I'll put a link in the show notes. Do go and explore. Now, Sean has done a lot of things with his life so far, but you know what? I'll put a link to his website in the show notes and you can go and have a read and see the cutest little photo of the young Sean during his first year at school and find out all about him. But before I hand over to Sean, I'll just say this won't be the last you'll hear of him. He's going to be appearing on Poetry P Readings in its second series next year when he's going to read to us from his recent book, Fragmentation, a winner of the HSA Merit Book Award for Best Highborn Book. Again, link in the show notes if you'd like to have a read. And of course, send me questions for Sean based on the book. He's also going to do another bonus podcast with myself and Shane Pruitt, the Highburn editor here at P Towers. He's on this recording too, but you won't hear from him in this edition. You'll hear from him in the bonus episode because we're going to be asking Sean questions, some of which you've sent us. Thank you very much. So Sean, I'm handing over to you and I'll see you at the end. Well, thank you very much, Patricia. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. We've been talking about this for a while and finally we get to sit down in front of cameras and do this. So I'm really honoured um, as the editor and the founder of the Highbun Journal to talk to you today about the Highbun form. And of course, I can't talk about Highbun unless I talk about haiku. So I'll be talking about both. So I'm basically got four sections here that I'm going to do, and I will put some notes on the screen as we go along uh, so that you can freeze that and take them down or grab them or whatever. Anyway, here we go. The first thing I, I'd like to talk, or I'll be talking in the following sequence, which is the nomenclature, the language of Highbun and haiku and what those words mean specifically. And I think that's important to get our heads around that. Then I'm going to talk about how Highbun evolved, and then uh, I'll move from there about writing haiku, which will be actually something I'll spend less time on because I think the key objective I have is to give people a sense of the origins, the development of the haibon form and what the form is and what the words that we use around, including the word haibon, what does all of this mean? So I'm going to go through my own notes, which I'll then put up gradually as I go along. So the first thing um, that I'd like to talk about is the kind of history of this Japanese literature, because it's from the context of what happened before haiku and haibon that we begin to get an appreciation for what they are. How did they come to be? How did they come into being is really what I want to talk about. So there's some of the nomenclature I need to talk about is the first thing I want to talk about is the word uta. Uta means palm or palms. Now, here's a trick that you need to know with Japanese. I lived in Japan for five years. I speak Japanese. I'm married to a Japanese person, et cetera, et cetera. And the Japanese language is very rich and it's very interesting, but there's a twist, a very big difference with English. One of them is they don't distinguish between single and plural. So every word, every noun can be single or plural. You say the cat, it does not that. It's either cat can mean one cat or 10 cats. Does that make sense? So neko, cat, is one or many. So it trips people up a little bit that. So when we say haiku, it can mean a hundred haiku or one haiku, a little bit like the way we use the word euro. We don't say 10 euros, we say 10 euro and one euro, that type of thing. So uta means two things at the same time, but not necessarily in the way it's often 
understood in the West. Uta means a poem or poems, but it also means song or songs. But that doesn't mean a particular poem is a song or a song is a poem. So it's the context that drives it. So I'm a musician, and when I was in Japan, people would say, what kind of songs do you sing? I would say, Ireland or no Uta, Irish songs. But they didn't understand that maybe I'm reading poetry from Ireland. The context is important. So in that case, Uta means song. If they said to me, what kind of poetry do you write? And if my answer was Irish poems, then I would say, Ireland or no Uta, exactly the same thing. But they don't get confused about that. Now, occasionally, some poems are sung, but generally not. That's also the same uh, in English anyway. And there's a little suffixes that go on the end of words that mean uta or poem or song, and they are ka and she. So you hear tan ka or tan she. In the beginning, the first Japanese poetry was what we call the tanka. And I say we call the tanka these days because tanka was originally and still is called a waka. So I'd like to talk about this word waka. I've seen it mistranslated many times. Uh, and I, recently I saw an academic mistranslated as short song. That's uh, not really accurate at all. So the word waka is in two parts, wa and ka. And I've already said ka indicates it's a poem or a song, but in this case, a poem. So what does wa mean? Well, surprisingly, the name of Japan at the time, hundreds of years ago, when, when uh, waka were first written, then the, the country itself was called wa, simply wa. And wa meant, at that time, meant Japan. And it also has the same wa also at that time and today means harmony. So this is a culture that decided to call their country harmony. And that's because culturally, harmony is quite critical and central to their cultural thinking. So harmony with what? Well, the first thing is harmony among people. And the second is people being in harmony with the world, or as we would say, with nature. This goes back deep in the roots of Shintoism in Japan and so on. So the waka then is translated as Japanese poem. That's what it means. Why would they distinguish between a Japanese poem as opposed to other poems? Up to that point, all their poetry was written in Chinese. And the word for Chinese in this case is uh, kan. And as I've said, she can also mean poem. So kanchi means Chinese poetry. Now the tradition of writing poetry in Chinese and classical Chinese, more to the point, is still carried on today. I actually know people who write, Japanese people who go to their classes every week on, on kanji writing, and they learn ancient, very ancient classical Chinese in order to write poems in that language. And they still do it today. It's still very common, actually. So you will often hear Chinese poems. So waka meant a a poem that was Japanese, literally written in the in the Japanese language, and they were what we call tanka. Hence the confusion, waka, tanka, that is exactly the same thing. So wa means harmony, waka means Japanese poem, and a waka is the same as a tanka. And the word tan in this case means short, so a tanka is a short poem. Now I'm going to introduce another important word because it's connected to haiku, and that word, that suffix, as it were, in this case, is ku. 
Ku. Ku means verse. So a haiku is a verse. Full stop. So it cannot be anything that we wouldn't recognize normally as a verse. It can't be two words in the middle of a page because not quite a verse. And it can't be longer than a verse. Verses have their limitations. So we already have a clue here. And in that, uh, that clue is extended when we look at the structure of a tanka, also known as waka. The tanka consists of two verses. The first verse is three lines, typically, well, still to this day, written in 575 syllables. And the name of that verse is the kami no ku, ku meaning verse, and kami meaning, in this case, upper. So it's the upper verse. The lower verse, which is called the shimo no ku, is two lines of seven syllables each. So a tanka then is two verses. Although it's written straight as five lines, that's not the structure. The internal structure is two distinct verses. Uh, Tony, Anthony, I should say, Markoff in Britain recently commented that the, the, the two verses are the poet sees and the poet reflects. It's a nice way of thinking about tanka. So already we're seeing the word ku appearing in the structure of tanka, the two verses. And haiku has the same ku, so we're expecting a verse in that. So the haiku developed as the opening verse of a renga. The renga worked as a gathering of poets together who would in turn write individual verses of a long poem, a sequence, and ren means a sequence. And ga, in this case, is, a, how do you say, a variation on ka, meaning poem. So it means a sequenced poem. And what they were doing is they were essentially writing a lot of waka, as they would have called it at that time, or tanka, in a row. But they weren't independent of each other. So each verse would go to the next verse. To, instead of the, how do you say, it wasn't like you write a tanka and then I'll write another one. <laughs> it was you write the first verse, the kami no ku. Someone else would write, add the next two lines, the shimo no ku. And then from there, they would create another section of the poem into the next kami no ku, the next three-line verse into the next two-line verse, and on they go. And the opening verse was the only verse that had no restrictions on it in the same way as the rest of the verses. So what do I mean by restrictions? Well, we often hear people talk about link and shift, and that in the high one, there's, there's this phenomenon of linking and shifting between the prose and the haiku. This is something that's been imported by Westerners as an idea into high one, and I have no evidence that that's ever been the case in Japan. And I don't think of high one as structured like that. And there's a simple reason. Because the link and the shift in a renga is predetermined in the following way. So the opening verse has no uh, demand for the link and shift. It's obviously the next verse that does. And each of the verses, and they'd write typically 36, or they'd write certain numbers in advance. They'd know how many verses they're going to write, and it's predetermined. And the master, the head poet who wrote the, the opening verse, would then say, remind the poets that when we get to verse, say, seven, I, and I'm making, I just got off the top of my head, there, but every verse had some shift predetermined. And the shift might be, you must now name an animal, or you must now include something to say it's autumn or you must now do something else but they were predetermined before the poets sit down so 
uh, let's say I'm after writing a verse and you're next and you're sitting there and then the Renga master will say to you, right, you've now got to write the next verse. It's going to be a three liner as opposed to a two liner. It's got to be connected to the previous verse and you've got to mention an animal or you've got to do this or you've got to do that. And they have that written down in advance. So it's not a casual linking and shifting. It's a very deliberate game, if you like, that they're playing, that they know in advance what they're doing. That's why the, uh, the notion of link and shift does not apply well into the hyphen form. But there was a twist to the opening verse. An opening is hatsu and ku is verse. And when you say hatsu ku quickly, in Japanese, it comes out as haku, haku, which is the original name of haiku and is still used today inter, inter interchangeably with the word um, haiku. So the haku is the same as the haiku. So the opening verse, the poet that wrote the opening verse had a very major demand on them. And that demand was that they had to be in tune with the situation that they were meeting in. The, individual, the specific poets that were gathered, the circumstances in which they were gathered, both physically and emotionally. And they had to give expression to that, to set the tone of the entire poem. So how did they do that or why were they doing that? Well, for example, if a group of poets meet and one of their fellow poets had died a month earlier, the mood might not be very uplifting. There might be a sense of, a certain forlornness in the group. They know that they're gathering and one of their number has passed away since they last gathered, for example. Uh, and the, the haku writer would have to kind of capture that. So they would also, the haku master had to give a sense, the haku writer had to give a sense of the time of year that this was taking place because that also changes the emotional tone. So a group of Haiku poets or poets of any kind sitting in a freezing cold winter, remember no central heating in those days, and the snow outside or a big storm, the emotional atmosphere is very different to sitting in a, on a beautiful spring evening or in a really hot, humid night, and it's very tropical in Japan in the summer. So the haku writer would have to reflect all of that, and they only had three lines to do it. So they would always refer to the so-called season, but that sometimes is very narrowed down to a particular day in America. It might be Memorial Day or other days of the year that have emotional resonance. So this business of writing the haku was reserved for the person in their, in their, in their number that was regarded as the better poet, the, the most experienced a most knowledgeable poet would be assigned the job of writing this haku, this opening verse, this hatsuku or haiku. And to do that became revered. To do that well was recognized as an incredibly difficult thing to do, a very skillful thing to do. And at one point when Matsuo, Matsuo Basho arrived on the scene of poetry in, in Japan and literature, he was regarded as one of the finest writers of these opening verses. And he decided that it made sense to him that these verses were so um, self-contained and so re required such poetic skill that it made sense to him that he would try to teach people just to write those independently of the rest of the, the Renga 
if you follow what I mean. So he gathered his students around him and he set them out to this task about, can we write haku that are so good that they stand independently of all other forms, of the, of the rest of the renge or anything else that, that, that's, that uh, you can think about? And the answer was, in the end, it was yes. But that was not clear at the time whether that was going to work. So as a consequence of that, uh, he his students then applied and himself then applied themselves to really getting haku writing so well that it would be a form in itself. And that was the birth of the haiku. Wherever there's a twist. And the twist is that I suppose in some ways they might have lacked a little confidence, but every now and again, I, I'll take that back. <laughs> they, they were confident enough, but it made sense to them. That every now and again, you might put a little note in front of a haiku, a particular haiku, or after it. And those notes were written for many years, and they might consist of something like, on the death of a child. And then suddenly the haiku takes on a whole new context. Or it might say, a poignant one at the moment would be, uh, written on the day it was announced that the Queen of England passed away. And then you have this haiku. Now, they, <laughs> that really gives a whole different dimension to the haiku itself. So before I go any further and get into that, I'll reverse a little bit. I'm going to share screen and allow you to take some notes or you can, you can have them in the notes, but I'll just put that up and go through that quite quickly with some extra little bits of material. I'm going to share this now and you can see what I've just been talking about. So here we go. It's Uta is a song or poem, depending on the context. Ka or she at the, as suffixes indicate that it's a poem. Kan is Chinese, so kanshi means Chinese poetry, still practiced today in Japan. The waka, which is also the tanka, waka means harmony, which is the old name for Japan. So therefore, waka means Japanese poem, and the waka is the same as the tanka. And tanka, by the way, means short poem. Ka meaning poem, and tan meaning short. Five lines, five, seven, five, seven, seven. Move to the next screen. Ku means verse, and the two verses of the tanka are called the kami no ku, the upper verse of three lines of five, seven, five syllables. The lower verse is shimo no ku, two lines, seven, seven. And we get to haku, or haiku, I mean, sorry. So hatsuku is literally means the opening verse of a renga, a long sequence of, uh, a long sequence poem, I should say, not a sequence of poems. And the haku is a kind of a contraction of hatsuku. And today you can use both words to refer to haiku. People often ask me, what's the difference? There's no difference, none at all. In the same way as tanka and waka, there is no difference. Now here's the thing, hai. The hai in haiku means skillful or in a playful type of way. And when they say playful, those poets writing the uh, renga regarded it as a sort of a series of challenges that they had to go through. So when we say playful, I don't mean like a game of snakes and ladders, which is a pure game of chance. It's playful as in jest. Be a better way to think about it. So haiku means a skillful verse. Therefore, we're expecting a lot of skill. And the skill is in the restrictions of the work. The requirement to use Kigo very subtly and very well, for example, is a skill. The 
way the rhythm in, in using rhythm in the haiku is a skill believe me that's a particularly difficult skill so that's where i where we get to the word haiku skillful verse and i move to the next page in the haiku itself has got three lines and they are also named as kami go meaning upper five you see kami no ku in a tanka the upper verse kami go means upper five upper the middle line is seven naka Shichi uh, and Shimo go lower five. So now we're thinking of it as something with an upper line, a middle line, and a third, a lower line. So 575 does not simply mean the number of syllables, but it also means that this verse, when read aloud, is consists of three utterances. And here's why I say it's not only about 575, because we've got the next dimension, which is Giamari or extended. Haiku. Jiamari is a word in Japanese, indicates the haiku has more than 17 syllables. And Basho wrote a considerable number of these. In fact, he was arguing that you can write up to 23 syllables. And I have identified 36 of his haiku. There are 23 syllables long. And he's written over a thousand that we know of. Um, then we've got another word, Jitarazu, which means a haiku with less than 17 syllables. This is also important because Jitarazu means something missing. So straight away, we're thinking, hang on a minute. I thought everything was supposed to be 17 syllables. What's all this Giamari or extended haiku? Well, it means that 575 is a rule of thumb, which has a second meaning, which is that when you read it aloud, it is read as three utterances. This changes our entire perspective. It means that anybody who says, a haiku is not 17 syllables is blatantly wrong <laughs> because 17 syllables is not as relevant as it might appear. A lot of the work may be accidentally 17 syllables. Those who say anything that's not 17 syllables are also wrong, but for a different reason. They're wrong because the Japanese have never adhered to that idea. They've often veered towards more than 17 syllables. So what is it that the Japanese are doing when they're writing haiku? They, they, they write and they look for the rhythm of three utterances. And then they look at the words they're using and think, can any of these be taken away and uh, not weaken the work? So what we call pairing back or tightening. But when they do that, they then regard it as they now have created more space for another word, not necessarily replacing the one they took out, but it's a little bit like writing iambic pentameter when you're writing a sonnet. You need the five beats, you, you write the drafts, you look at a line and you think, oh, I've got a tautology there. I'll, I don't need one of those words can go. You take it out, but you don't simply replace it to maintain the rhythm. You then look at the rhythm again and you rewrite the entire line so that you maintain the rhythm. That technique that we use in mainstream, I say mainstream poets, but in poetry that has defined rhythms and meters and so on, is the same technique that the Japanese use in haiku. So the notion that you just pair back and leave it is mistaken. Uh, pairing back is brilliant and should be done, but it allows you to find more space. So one of the things that I was always struck by with my haiku friends in Japan, that they used to, I used to hear this a lot in Japan, this phrase, this idea, the haiku is already too short. Why would you use even less? Their idea is it's kind of a minimum of 17 syllables, not a maximum, or it's not as short as possible. 
they say it's already too short. It's too short. It's hard work to make this into a viable poem without making it any shorter. So they're there trying pair back in order to create more space to use other words that will strengthen the poem. That's one of the biggest aspects of haiku writing that really changed my perspective when I went to live in Japan, where I stayed for five years in a rural area where nobody spoke English. So this is why it, the notion of 575 is slightly, has certain risks in it because we often ignore those three utterances. What I'm going to do now off the top of my head is I'm going to let you hear how that sort of works in Japanese. I'm going to take a little sip of water first. We're all very familiar with Basho's famous frog poem, uh, the poem of the pond and the frog. And it's I've seen it translated as short as possible. I've seen the shortest translations I've kind of seen roughly go pond, frog and splash, just pog, frog, the frog, pond, frog, splash. Pond, frog, splash, those three words as a representation of that haiku really, really miss the whole feel of it and the rhythm of it. So why don't I say it in Japanese? This is the frog poem in Japanese. Hurui keya, kawazu tomikomu, mizu no oto. I'll say that again. Hurui keya, kawazu tomikomu. Mizu no oto. One statement, a second utterance, a third utterance, a pause at the end of each of the three lines. Very clear rhythm, sounds like three distinct utterances. Now, the trick is that that is not a unique thing to that poem. All haiku in Japanese have that sound. I've never heard a haiku read aloud in Japanese that doesn't sound like that. So I'll fast forward 100 years or so to Busan. And again, off the top of my head from memory, I'll read one of his more famous haiku, which in English roughly means a rapeseed field. The moon, uh, the moon in the east, the sun in the west, which is regarded as a quite a masterpiece in, in Jap uh, by the Japanese. So how does that sound? That sounds like this. Nano Hanaya Tsukiwa Higashini Hiwa Nishini. I'll say that again. Nano Hanaya Tsukiwa Higashini Hiwa Nishini. Here's the interesting thing. If you take any of the five syllable lines and change them with the other poem, if you take those two poems and swap the, the lines around, any of the five syllable lines, if you take the middle lines and switch them, they will sound the same rhythm, yet they're written 100 years apart by people who never met each other. Now, in Tanka, which has that same structure in the first three lines, in other words, that the haiku is, is like the first verse, the Kaminoku kami of the Tanka, Tanka are often sang in Japan, and they have a particular melody. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sing those two haiku as if they were the opening lines of Tanka, and you'll see why. So I'm going to use the melody they typically use for the opening verses of Tanka, which match the haiku rhythm, and I'm going to sing those two haiku. So the first haiku is Hurui keya kawazu kobi komu mizu no oto 
And the second one, Nano Hanaya, Tsukiwa Higashini, Hiwanishini. You can hear it. Those match quite precisely in the same way as, you know, musicians lock rhythms in for whatever they're playing a boss and over. They don't, they make sure it's in five four rhythm and not three four, it's a waltz. So when you hear it like that, you begin to realize that this rhythm of three utterances, the second of which is longer than the first two, and uh, sorry, the first and third, and the first and third are very similar. This presents us with a whole other skill set to take on, which is be careful with our penchant or enjambment. When we run one line into another, we can kill that rhythm completely. And I see this with a lot of haiku. We can kill that rhythm. So we have to be very skillful in how we compose our haiku. So they have that really strong sense of three utterances and that clarity of rhythm. When we go to haibun writing and you're right, reading your haibun in front of a live audience or on a radio, the listener should hear the distinction between the prose and the haiku because of the haiku's rhythm. Because there's a switch in the rhythm and the tone and the emotional resonance because of Kigo in the haiku. So when the prose, we're, prose by definition does not have fixed rhythm, whereas poetry does. All poetry is, rhythm is an essential part of all poetry, whereas prose can have what's often is very rhythmic, it's very musical, but it doesn't have to be. And if it is got musicality, it's not consistently musical. You can change the, the pace and the rhythm. But not with poetry. When you, once you set up your first verse of any poem, your second verse has to match that rhythm. It won't work if you go chopping and changing rhythms all over the place. And this is what we mean by form when we talk about haiku and haibun. So in that sense, uh, we get a whole different uh, structure. Now, if you look back on the screen, I've left that up there. Uh, if you look to the very end, the skill, the high that means skillful in haiku, is still there with the high one. But the word boon, boon as it's pronounced in Japanese, means sentence or sentences. So just as haiku means a skillful verse, haibun means skillful sentences. So we're expecting sentences. So therefore we're not expecting a hybrid of one poem followed by a haiku or a haiku followed by another type of poetry, which is, seems to be emerging as a trend at the moment. I don't mind what people do, but I'm just trying to tell you the way it works as a form. So in that sense, a haibun is clearly haiku with sentences. And that be, that goes back to what I was talking about earlier, because the when the haiku emerged out of the renga, there tended to be little notes or a little sentence or a half phrase or something put in there to contextualize the piece. Let's uh, look at um, this book here. This is by Sam Hamill. It's a translation of Issa's, I think he calls it, what does he call it? The Spring of My Life, yeah, good translation. And it's um, really, this is the one of the great collections of Highborn that we will see. But just so I draw your attention, and this is in translation. So I draw your attention to the following haiku and the note that Issa, he's talking about other people's haiku, by the way, he's quoting other people. But this is a, a haiku that's quoted in here by Isa. And in English, the translation Sam Hamill has is, the cranes cry in vain, 
late into the night. No blanket can thaw this cold world. The cranes cry in vain late into night. No blanket can thaw this cold world. And that's a haiku. But when you read the note beforehand, the note says, on the night his daughter was buried, Kikaku wrote, the cranes cry in vain, late into night. No blanket can thaw this cold world. Suddenly, that haiku is in a whole different place because of a few words put one sentence basically put before it. I'll give one more example on that. Uh, I'll just read the, what I'll do this time is I'll read the note followed by the haiku. And again, Isa's quoting someone else and he names them. And the, it says, following the death of his young son, Kagano Chio wrote, how far has he gone? Where has he wandered? Chasing after dragonflies? I'll read the whole thing. Following the death of his young son, Kagano Chiro wrote, How far has he gone? Where has he wandered? Chasing after dragonflies? When you read that on its own, the haiku, it's a haiku and it's good. But when you add that note before it, and you realize the, the poet is talking uh, in the aftermath of their young son's death, it changes our perspective radically. Now, one of the most famous poem, haiku poems by Isa, and I'm going to use Sam's translation, there's a wide range, very hard to translate the rhythm, by the way. So when I'm reading these, I'm not catching the rhythm of the original Japanese. Please bear that in mind. So a very famous piece by Isa is the following. In Sam's translation, this world of Jew is only the world of Jew. And yet, oh, and yet, this world of Jew is only the world of Jew. And yet, oh, and yet. It's very famous, like. However, let's read the three paragraphs that go before it, written by Isa, which is a high one when you put the two together. This is quite hard hitting, I have to say. And I'll go straight into the haiku after it. Yeah, so I, I'm reading in translation from Sam Hamill, from Isa. It is often said that the greatest pleasures result in the greatest misery. But why is it that my little child, who had no chance to savor even half the world's pleasures, who should be green as new needles on the eternal pine, why should she be found on her deathbed, puffy with blisters raised by the despicable god of smallpox? How can I, her father, stand by and watch her fade away each day like a perfect flower suddenly ravished by rain and mud? Two or three days later, her blisters dried to hard scabs and fell off like dirt softened by melting snow. Encouraged, we made a tiny boat of straw and poured hot sake over it with a prayer and sent it floating down river in hopes of placating the god of the pox. But our hope and efforts 
were useless and she grew, grew weaker day by day. Finally, at midsummer, as the morning glory flowers were closing, her eyes closed forever. Her mother clutched her cold baby and wailed. I knew her heartbreak, but also knew that tears were useless, that water under the bridge never returns, that scattered flowers are gone forever. And yet nothing I could do could cut the bonds of human love. This world of Jew is only the world of Jew. And yet, oh, and yet, I need to draw a breath after that. <laughs> it's difficult to read. I find that particularly emotional to, to try and read that. So let me talk about at the end about the fact that Haibun and Haiku then came out of the same period and the same writers who had separated the Haku or that opening verse of the Renga into something independent and unique of it, which they regarded as difficult to write and requiring great poetic skill, they naturally started to add some notes before or after them, sometimes quite casual notes, like say written on the way to visit my brother a year after the death of his wife, for example, or they could be just on holiday in Bermuda. <laughs> some of them are, are just appear anyway to be quite uh, maybe I won't say trivial, but less emotional impact than, than the ones I've quoted. But at the same time, Basho himself then went on this famous journey to the what was often known as the, the, the North Oku. And, and he wrote this great piece of Haibon called The Narrow Road to the Deep North, various translations of that. And what he did was, as he was traveling for months on foot with his companion a lot of the time and with joined by other people here and there, he would write a lot of notes about where he was and what day, a little kind of diary, if you like, a travel diary. But he also wrote an awful lot of haiku as he went along. And afterwards, when he came back, or even as he was going, he would start to put this narrative together, things that happened along this great route, this journey. And he would put haiku in where he, the, the haiku he'd already written in among this to, uh, uh, how can I put it? He would put haiku in knowing that he's going to talk about a particular occasion, but the haiku were the primary driver. It was the haiku that were written first. He already had his haiku and he could rewrite them slightly here and there, but he had the haiku written first and he had his notes and then he would look and think, right, okay, I'm going to talk about this event where we met that man saying this or that woman saying that. And he would look at the haiku he'd written around that and they would be the backbone of what he was going to write. So everything, all the prose was geared constantly to the haiku. Because that's how the haiku, the haibun developed. It developed out of haiku writing as notes, as explanations, as contextualizations. And that's how they thrive. So, for example, I personally have never written a haibun without first writing haiku that are potential haiku for that haibun. So if I'm going to write a high one, I don't sit down and start writing the story. I've got to write about the day my father died, which did happen recently. And if I want to write something poignant or otherwise, whatever it is I'm going to write, I know what I'm intending to write about. But first I sit and I contemplate that whole story, whatever it is. And in doing so, I allow haiku to come to mind and then I start to write them and work on them. And I usually have quite a 
few haiku written down before I'm ready then to start telling the story in the high one form. But I have my haiku already. And I generally don't use them all. I may write eight haiku that I think would be very useful for this high one and only use one. And I may use it as the opening. I mean, I, it, where it comes and how it works depends on the story I'm telling. So I do not ever start with prose and then try to wonder what haiku would go with that. No, it's the haiku are driving the high one all the way from the get go. Start with haiku. You may even write different haiku when you start getting into it and start composing the prose. You may change your mind and all that. But the method is, the core method is, it's haiku writing around some story you're working on, followed by um, the prose that then illuminates that, not the other way around. It's not haiku illuminating prose. It's pro it's prose illuminating the haiku. And I will wind up now. I, I've run out of time and it's been great talking to you. But as you can see, there's a lot more I'd like to say, but I'll come back to that another time. I hope that's helpful. The last thing I will say, though, is all art is about emotion. And all high one writing is to deliver emotional resonance with and an emotional connection with the reader. That's no different to any other form of liter literary writing. And we should never lose sight of that. And you can see when I'm even trying to read Issa's account of the death of his seven-year-old, I think she was seven, it's even painful for me to read it aloud today. And I never met Issa. <laughs> I don't know who he is, uh, apart from that he's a great poet. So I hope that's helpful. The haiku are primary, which is why I spend so much time talking about haiku when I'm talking about haibun. We cannot get away from that. And I'd like to say thank you to Patricia for uh, having me here today. And thank you to Shane and thank you to all of you for listening. And I hope it was helpful. Take care. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. It was a real pleasure to have you on today, talking with real passion about, about your subject and of course, a lot of knowledge. The idea of the three utterances is really stuck in my brain. And the fact that you spoke about the rhythm of the, of the, the haiku, I think it's gonna change the way I write my haiku going forward. So again, thank you very much for coming along today and talking to us. And don't forget, if you'd like to know more about Sean, or you'd like to find out uh, a little bit more about what he's been talking about, particularly the Sam Hamill book, all links will be in the show notes. Do go along and have a look. Thank you very much, Sean. Well, I hope you enjoyed that workshop as much as I did and are inspired to go out and write some haibun, remembering the importance of the haiku within them. I can hardly wait to close the podcast and settle down with my notebook and do some writing myself. Thanks, Sean. So keep an eye on our submissions info on the website, so you'll know when our next haibun submission period is. Better still, make sure you're signed up to our mailing list, as I'll be sending out reminders using that. Thanks again to Sean, and of course to M. Shane Pruitt, our Highburn editor. You can hear from him in the bonus episode that will be published soon. Sean, Shane and I have a right old Q&A session all about Highburn. Anyone on the mailing list will hear about this. It won't be on general release. So, see you soon for the next episode of the Haiku P. Next time, 
our original deep haiku and senryu. Till then, keep writing.